welcome to the current federal tax developments for the week of October the 18th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and coming to you again this week from here in Phoenix, and we're going to talk about what's gone on in this last two weeks in taxes. Last week, I was involved in all of the standard October 15th deadline scramble for the procrastinators and others, so didn't quite have the ability to put everything together last week, and we're still not looking at huge amounts of development, so going two weeks actually made sense in this regard. I mean, otherwise, we were looking at stories like the guy who tried to claim that the IRS couldn't penalize him because he had copyrighted his actual name. And so when they put his name on the document uh, to try to send him a penalty notice, that was a copyright violation. The IRS owed him a half a half million dollars or whatever it was. It was kind of a, those are the type of cases we've had recently. So, yeah, we haven't been missing a lot. It's been really kind of an odd period. But this week, we're going to talk about a few things. Uh, first thing we're going to talk about here is... We're going to, again, continue our discussion of where do we stand with Congress on the reconciliation bill and, to a much lesser extent, the infrastructure bill. I guess you shouldn't say lesser extent if you're deeply involved in the area of cryptocurrency, because for that, that bill is somewhat important. But otherwise, yeah, we're not that, you know, it's not that big a bill. The big tax bill is the one that they would be discussing for what's going to go in with the uh, issue they're having regarding that whole mess with the reconciliation bill, and we'll talk about where we stand with that. We had an interesting document come out on Friday. The IRS published a 24-page chief counsel advice that outlines what will be required, uh, technically beginning in January, for any claim uh, for refund relating to the research credit. The IRS apparently decides they're getting too many research credit claims, and many of them are not in the best shape. So they've now said, if you don't have at least this information, you know, laid out in this fashion, we're going to start bouncing these claims automatically, or as we'll discuss, for one year, we're going to give you 30 days to fix it, uh, which could be crucial if you're right at the deadline uh, for timely filing. Uh, otherwise, then sometime in 2023, we'll then convert that to it just be a straight rejection uh, and doing so in a way that they claim will preclude you from being able to challenge that rejection in the district court. So we'll talk a bit about that, what they're looking at and how it would work. We'll talk about what you may find is a surprising case where a taxpayer was able to claim a deduction for alimony related to amounts paid for his soon-to-be ex-spouse. It was under a separation agreement. But his soon-to-be ex-spouse's medical insurance, where he was paying it with a cafeteria plan. So the IRS claimed that was an impermissible double deduction. The court disagreed and said, nope, we don't think it is. We, in fact, think, and this is a published tax court opinion, that this is not an impermissible double benefit, and we'll tell you why it's not. The IRS published a document, this was actually in the week, in the prior week, that discussed the way you integrate the extended relief dates for certain actions related to COBRA, that is for applying for COBRA coverage, uh, or paying the premium for COBRA coverage. And we'll talk about the delays, how they work, and how the IRS now clarifies how that whole thing runs. And finally, a document we've been waiting for for a while, uh, the IRS finally has published, although still not in a formal location, but at least somewhere that's going to be a lot tougher for them to disavow it, a statement regarding the level of reliance taxpayers can place on the IRS's frequently asked questions that they've taken to posting on their website in lieu of issuing things like notices, announcements, and the like. And we'll discuss where that stands and what this means. But let's first talk about where we stand with Congress. It's been two weeks, and we're really nowhere different than where we were two weeks ago. 
negotiations continue over getting some agreement that the Senate that can get all 50 Democrat votes in the Senate and get a majority in the House uh, to agree to on the larger reconciliation bill, the one that was initially at a $3.5 trillion price tag. We are now getting this, and it's also been tied, I should say, to the bipartisan infrastructure bill that's also still tied up in Congress. As I've noted before, the bipartisan infrastructure bill has only a few tax issues in it. Probably the most significant two are it has the reporting on cryptocurrency, you know, the more detailed reporting and issues there. And that's got the crypto world upset. It also would repeal the employee retention credit for all reasons except recovery startup businesses effective on October 1st. Now, as you may note, we are now well past that date. And no, I do not know if the bill would be modified to change that. And I do not know what you should be doing in terms of claiming that. Well, actually, I do. I have my position, which is fairly straightforward. I think any employer needs to be told that this may not be around. And if you reduce your payroll tax deposits now by the amount of ERC that you would believe you'd be qualified for under the law as it exists, you may find yourself short of funds, you know, where we don't have enough deposit to cover our payroll tax liabilities on the 941. And it's not clear how you would be allowed to make that up, how you'd be able, you know, I suspect we'd be allowed to make it up without paying penalties. But would we be told, like, you know, Congress passes a bill, the president signs it, let's say, by October 31st, would you be told you've got to get your payroll tax deposits up to speed by November 15th, November 30th, December 31st, or maybe we can do it with a 941? So you have that risk level if you offset it. I would remind the client that if this does not get repealed, we still can claim the refund on the 941. But if you're actually doing the 7200 asking for money, going that whole route, yeah, you may find yourself having to put some more money in. So a little leery about that. On the infrastructure bill, again, not clear where we stand there. The most recent rumors now, which are just that because nobody's agreed to anything yet, would be that the programs would be cut down to about $2 trillion. And if that happens, we don't need as much in the way of funds. Therefore, some of the proposed tax increases would likely, revenue raisers would likely go away. Now, what that means in terms of which ones would go away, who knows? That's going to be something that would obviously be determined by Congress in the deal they put together. Speculating on that right now is not really going to get you anywhere. Uh, again, we don't know. This is in a huge state of flux. It's like speculating back in the repeal and replace days of 2017 about what the post-ACA, you know, new and better program was going to be. It was like, you look, there were so many proposals because they were so far apart that no real point in trying to figure this out until we actually get an agreement, which, of course, in repeal and replace, we never did. And I do want to remind people there is a more than reasonable chance that we'll get that same result. As with repeal and replace, it may be the majority party is simply unable to get an agreement among their members that would allow them to move forward on the issues, and all of this may collapse. And then the question would be, would we get some sort of year-end tax bill extender program to fix a certain things that would go away anyway in the law? Would there be some sort of year-end bill? And again, way too early to speculate, but keep your eyes on all of it. Let's therefore go to our first development. And this came out on basically Friday afternoon, if you're on the East Coast, as I recall, you know, the time they posted. I believe this posted around 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern time, just around 11 a.m., between 11 and noon here in Phoenix. And it was the IRS posting a combination of a news release and a 22-page memorandum outlining information that will be required to be included with any claim for refund under the research credit. I'm certain most of you are aware or have had clients who have been contacted by organizations that are rounding up uh, businesses to file claims 
for a research credit, right? You know, the credit for increasing research activities under Section 41 and doing it under various structures, normally for a percentage of the refund received. And again, nothing really wrong with that concept. However, not surprisingly, the IRS is concerned that there are some groups doing that who maybe aren't, shall we say, uh, the most careful about how they're handling it, aren't the best, and are throwing in some rather garbage-up refund claims, hoping they just get passed. And the IRS is finding, in their view, that this is wasting a lot of time of the agency. Now, there's a news release and 22-page memorandum. The news release is a good summary. The memorandum has a few details. Uh, it's not really 22 pages of what you have to attach. You're going to discover the memorandum has a lot of details about supporting law, about a position, and probably a lot of it's devoted to the IRS's authority to determine that you have not provided adequate information for the IRS to reasonably assess the claim, kind of treating the 1040X like an informal claim structure. Was the IRS sufficiently appraised of the nature of the claim in order to move forward? And their theory that they can reject, and that rejection would be considered not a situation that would allow you to go straight to tax court, but would rather say you would never file the claim. So you're going to see a lot of case law right at the front of the memo that deals with that position to justify where the IRS is going. Now, the IRS in their news release made it very clear that they're spending a lot of administrative time on claims that simply have major components missing. And so because of that, they are now going to start requiring that all claims have certain information included when they're submitted or they will be summarily rejected. Now we'll discuss that won't happen rapidly. It's going to take until 2023 where it'll just be pure flat out rejection, but we'll discuss what that how that works. Now, the information that's required to be provided is summarized in the news release as essentially to be a valid claim you're going to have to tell me about all business components for which the research credit relates to that year. So you put in a claim for 2019. I need to know all business components that you're claiming have a research credit related to that component of the business. And for each component, you need to then identify all research activities can performed, name the individuals who performed each of those specific activities, as well as the information each individual was seeking to discover. That must be stated up front. Finally, you must provide the total qualified employee wage expenses, total qualified supply expenses, and total qualified contract research expenses for the claim year. And this, they note, can be done on Form 6765, the credit for increasing research activities. So the 6765 is an important part of your claim, but it's not the entire claim. The other data must be submitted. Uh, the IRS position is if you fail to submit that data, then the IRS is going to flat out reject your claim and in fact, treat it as never filed ultimately. Again, that goes back to the IRS position outlined in the memo that you know if, if you just say, hey, IRS, I think you owe me money. Well, that's inadequate to apprise the IRS of the nature of your claim. And they're going to take the position that that is now also true uh, when we are looking at things like this research credit issue. Uh, if you don't provide at least that base information about the specific details of your research activities, including tying it down to specific people and specific things they were pursuing. And that's going to be key in this program. Now, the IRS is going to phase in this program. So it will be a phased in program. Initially, beginning on January, up until January 10th of 2022, they will not enforce this program. They will go ahead and start processing the claim, even if you didn't have that level of information. So what they're doing effectively is giving you a few months, essentially three months, uh, to start putting claims together that meet these requirements specifically. 
I would probably suggest if you are doing such claims, it wouldn't be a bad idea to put this together now. Because while you won't run into the 30-day issue that we'll talk about here in a second, uh, what's going to happen is you're going to still probably be asked to provide this stuff. And I wouldn't be surprised to have a deadline before they'll just reject it. However, beginning with claims submitted on or after January 10th of 2022, uh, the IRS will essentially, um, if you file a claim and the claim does not meet the requirements of the memo, providing the information that's in the memo. And again, I've given you the summary, but it's really important to go look at the 22-page memo itself and get the specifics and lay it out the way they want it laid out. If you don't provide that, they will give you 30 days, essentially a grace period, if they discover you failed to provide the information. So what the service is saying we're going to do, they're going to do is they're going to take your claim when somebody picks it up, the only thing that person is going to do initially is review to see that you submitted the data per the memorandum. If the answer is no, then you will simply get it right back uh, and be told you must submit the following items. They must be submitted within 30 days. If they are not submitted within 30 days, then the IRS is going to flat out treat it as an insufficient claim. And again, that's a big problem if you, let's say, got your claim filed just before the statute was going to run out. In that case, obviously, we can't lose that filing date. And the IRS is threatening you with losing the filing date unless you come back in 30 days. A year from that program, one year later, so therefore early in 2023, uh, the IRS will just simply reject that when the person starts processing the claim. If they do not find this information in the claim for refund, they will simply mark it as rejected, treat it as never filed, tell you that. And if you don't have some statute remaining, you're not going to be able to get this fixed. And again, and if statute's running out, again, you have to submit before the statute runs out a claim that has all of the information the IRS has in memorandum. Now we can ask a simple question. Can the IRS make that stick? I don't know. I'm sure somebody will challenge it, uh, but do you really want to be the party challenging it? I think it's what your client has to ask. If you're preparing these, as I said, I think I would start moving toward this because it'll be simpler for your client uh, to do this. If you don't yourself do these studies and you know do this work to help the client claim the research credit and you're using a third-party firm, it will be important when looking at that firm to see if that firm is complying with these rules or not. If they're not going to be complying with these rules, then yeah, you know, the client may go down a long path, waste a lot of time and get nowhere. And in fact, may just be burning time that if they went with a group who was following these requirements, they might have actually gotten a research credit. So, you know, I think this is because the IRS believes that the research credit has gotten out of control. And some of the groups that are doing these research credit studies are just slopping them through as fast as possible. Uh, that's the probably the downside when they do claims that are based on percentage of refund is that there is an incentive to just slop a whole bunch through and see what happens. You know, some will slip through and you'll get those percentages. Uh, you know, you need to have them prepared properly. So, and again, there are groups that do a good job of that. You just got to be careful that that's what you're following because the service is saying, yeah, we're, we're going to stop doing this. Next up is a rather surprising case, Lay versus Commissioner. This is 157 TC number 7. This came out on October the 4th. And this is an interesting case involving something that we still deal with some because we still have a few of these uh, divorce agreements that apply. But I think the concept of this case was much more interesting, how the tax court analyzed it, because the similar concept could come up in other, in other situations that while it won't be alimony in the future, uh, it may be something else. And this is how the tax court decided if a taxpayer was receiving a double benefit. I think a lot of you would have probably thought he was. So what happened here is the taxpayers were in the process of getting formally divorced, okay? And 
there was a legal separation order in place in the state that Mr. Lee, during this period before the very, very final document was granted, and when they were legally separated, so they were still technically married under state law, that Mr. Lee would provide for his soon-to-be ex-spouse's medical coverage. And since his ex-spouse was not, his spouse was not ex yet, his spouse was still a spouse, so eligible to be covered under the medical plan of Mr. Lee's employer. Mr. Lee's employer had a cafeteria plan, and employees paid for their medical benefits under the cafeteria plan, and one of your options was whether or not you wanted to cover your spouse. Well, Mr. Lee was selecting the option to cover his spouse, and he paid for her medical care, which he was required to under the state court order, by using that cafeteria plan. Now, the IRS, and so he put that down on his return, so he put his W-2 wages, which obviously were reduced by the contributions to the cafeteria plan, including those used to pay his spouse's wages, or pay his spouse's, I should say, medical care coverage. And then he also separately listed as a deduction, the as alimony, that amount that he had had taken out of his paycheck from the cafeteria plan. Now, the IRS yelled, wait a minute, you're deducting this twice. That is an impermissible double benefit. It is being deducted twice. And so because of that, you know, we're going to disallow that alimony deduction. <laughs> so... You know, he could not claim that deduction. He was filing a married filing separate return. That's probably obvious to most people because clearly if it was married joint, you know, it wouldn't really make any difference. But married filing separate. So his spouse was, his spouse at the time on her married filing separate return was picking this up as income. Now, the taxpayer argued that he should be allowed the deduction, his spouse was picking this up as income. And the tax court agreed. The tax court said, since the spouse was picking this up as income on her return, there was not an impermissible double benefit from Mr. Lee being able to claim those amounts as alimony payments, even though the amount was already deducted from his W-2 wages. The IRS, interestingly, and this goes back to a topic we've discussed multiple times recently, attempted to argue for their position by pointing out in the committee reports back in the 1940s, when the alimony deduction was first added to the code, that the Senate committee report had noted that the purpose of this deduction was to ensure that the party paying the alimony was not required to include in his income an amount that was really, you know, not going to him, but was going to his former spouse and should be picked up in that spouse's income. And so it was there. But they specifically talked about that, you know, not picking up the income and moving the income taxation to the spouse. Now, the IRS said, see, the committee report makes it clear this was Congress's intent. As we have discussed multiple times recently, it doesn't matter what congressional intent was if the law is clear. The court in this case decided that the law was clear. This Nowhere in the alimony deduction was there a bar on being able to claim a deduction just because it might have been paid out of tax-exempt funds. You know, like, we don't go worry about, well, you know, did, did somebody get their, you know, tax-exempt interest from muni bonds? Did they take that check, deposit it, and use those funds to pay for the alimony? We don't care about that. That's not the issue. So what the court said was, you know, we don't care about that. Yes, I see that. Isn't that nice? But Congress didn't say that in the law. We see nothing that bars this deduction in the law. 
we do not see any sort of double benefit. We do not see anything that would disallow the deduction. And because this is a reported tax court decision, it also means that it's never really come up before and that the court has agreed and reviewed the decision, the judges have, and have agreed to take this position consistently moving forward. Now, more likely where this will become important is, again, reviewing these instances where the IRS is going to try to claim that there is some sort of excess benefit or some sort of unfairness. Now, the IRS also tried their old friend, you know, the uh, paid out of, you know, related to exempt income, and the court didn't buy that one either. Uh, so they didn't quite go down that path as well. Uh, and that was also one we talked about a lot last year. But again, please remember, and this is a case of the IRS relying too much on committee reports, committee reports only work in the face of some ambiguity. And as when we talked about the employee retention credit, you know, and the splashback problem, similarly here, the court did not find any ambiguity. So we really didn't care. And in fact, in this case, we had much clearer congressional intent. I've yet to find somebody actually clearly find me a statement, uh, especially after the cross-reference was put into 267C in that section 51I1, clear congressional statement that they didn't mean for splashback to work. And in fact, we have in the PATH Act and in the proposed committee report, the committee report for the proposed legislation uh, on the reconciliation bill, we have twice Congress saying, oh yeah, yep, if you actually have a controlling interest, you can't claim. So this is even clearer congressional intent. And again, court said congressional intent doesn't matter unless the law itself is unclear, which this one wasn't. Next up, the IRS issued notice 202158, uh, and it came out on October 6, 2021. Now, as you may remember from last year, back in May of last year, the IRS and Department of Labor issued a series of a, gui a bit of guidance that pushed back the deadline for making a, the election for COBRA coverage for an employee, let's say, who, who now first qualified for COBRA coverage after we got into the national emergency and also pushed back the date when they had to make payments for that COBRA coverage. And so there, there were two pushback dates that pushed it back. Uh, if the 60-day period began or was running during the national emergency, that period would be extended until the earlier of the end of the national emergency or what's referred to in this notice as the outbreak period or one year from the date they first qualified for relief. Now, there's been some confusion and ARPA changed some things too. So this notice was set out to essentially describe how you integrate with these programs, right? So we talked about this extension to the end of the national emergency or the outbreak period or one year. Now, what this ruling provides is it essentially says that we have various extended periods allowed, various time periods. So what we're going to do is explain that while we said separately that you extended the period during which you had to elect COBRA, for one year, up to one year, you know, from the date you first qualified for the benefit, or if later, or if earlier, the end of the national emergency, right, one year end of national emergency, these two run concurrently. So what that means is, let's say that your 60-day period began on, you know, June 1st of 2020. Well, the 60-day, the period to elect COBRA coverage would be held in advance and would move to one year and 60 days after that period, or if the national emergency ended, 60 days after the emergency ended would be the time period you have to elect COBRA and theoretically make payments. The IRS clarifies that those two run concurrently. Some people had interpreted it to mean that I had a year and 60 days. So I had essentially, if I had, let's say, June 1st, 
I could have delayed my election for COBRA until 60 days after June 1st, so effectively early August. And then that would be the first payment due date would now come up because I have to pay for the coverage. And I could then delay that by another year. Right. So I wouldn't have to make any payments until August of 2022. The IRS says, no, that's not right. Under the way the rules should be interpreted. If you, let's say, had your qualifying date, that was I'm going to move it past November 4th for a reason we'll discuss here in just a second. Let's say your qualifying date was December 1st of last year. Then you had until December 1st of this year plus 60 days. So you have until basically early February of 2022 to elect your COBRA coverage. But if you elect it, your payment is due that same date. You do not get a year from February 2022 to make your delayed payment. Okay. They clarify that similar rules apply for the ARPA rule that was in play. And they've already clarified the ARPA rule doesn't really get that year, but they had the interaction that you, if you wanted to use the ARPA special rule that had your COBRA coverage paid for if you were let go in 2021 during specified periods and you got it for a certain period that's now expired, uh, that you had to make your election and you know if, if you waited until after the ARPA period ended and then said, oh, but I still get to elect from last year. No, you don't get the extra coverage. So they make, make that, you don't get the coverage paid for, for the ARPA period. And making the ARPA election, which had to be made during the period, uh, basically started the whole process of everything else. Now, the IRS does recognize that some people had interpreted for not unreasonably that there was a dual period. That you know that, that you made your ARPA election and then you got another year before you had to pay the premium. So they said, in essence, we are going to allow you until November 4th to make any premiums that you're now late on due to the fact that you thought you had a year after the election date. So as long as you get all of those premiums paid by November 4th, we're fine. Once November 4th rolls around, then the rule is going to be enforced as stated in the notice. So generally, you have one year and 60 days or 60 days plus the end of the outbreak period to make this election. And you also have to pay at the same time. So again, for anybody who first qualified after November 4th of last year, that one year delay rule, it's going to mean once you elect COBRA, you've got to make the payment at the same time. The IRS clarified that because apparently some people, as I noted, were confused. Now, the IRS has a bunch of detailed examples in this notice. You'll find them reproduced in our materials. Uh, and the notice is effective as of October 6th. It was immediately effective date for the notice. Finally, we've been waiting on this one for a while. The IRS on the 15th on their website and with a news release they published a document entitled The General Overview of Taxpayer Reliance on Guides Published in the Internal Revenue Bulletin and FAQs. Again, that was published on the 15th. As we've all become aware, the IRS began heavily using frequently asked questions to explain the tax law issues following the issuance of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Now, how we got there is kind of interesting. And generally, we got there because the basically the head of the office management budget at the time was very much against you know agencies issuing these sorts of sub-regulatory guidance. That is, things that don't go through the full regulatory process to get approved, but are issued by the agency under less formal guidelines. Uh, and put in things like the IRS does, the Internal Revenue Bulletins, that the agency will still take as being at least somewhat binding on taxpayers. Well, they decided, well, that, that's not right. So they started basically telling agencies to shut down or greatly limit that sub-regulatory guidance. At the same time, you may remember, 
that early in the prior administration, we were told that if you issue a new regulation, you had to repeal two old ones. So essentially, the IRS decided that, well, this bar on subregulatory guidance, it didn't mean they went through the regulatory process and got public comment. It meant instead we just dodge all of this. So instead of formal subregulatory guidance, the IRS has resorted more and more to putting things on their websites in question and answer format to answer details about the new law. We have seen that with 199 cap A deduction under TCJA. We've seen it with the employee retention credit initially under the CARES Act. We've seen it for a lot of different situations where the IRS has posted the only guidance we have are FAQs on the website. So things like the taxability of those provider relief payments. That was found on the IRS website in an FAQ. You know, so they have now moved to this realm. I'm not sure this accomplishes the goal that, you know, Mick Mulvaney was after. But again, agency really didn't have another option. And you understand why they went this way. But it raised a huge question for all of us in tax practice. To what extent can we rely on what's posted on the IRS website? And the IRS realizes now, we've seen a lot of comments. The IRS has been grilled on this, the council's office has, multiple times in conferences over the past few years about, wait a minute, all this stuff is only coming out in FAQs. It's not being published in the Internal Revenue Bulletin. Because of that, you know, we don't know where we stand on this. You know, can a taxpayer really take that position and be assured that the IRS will not take a different position on exam? Or, you know, is the taxpayer just hung out to dry and the IRS could not only take the opposite position on exam, but then seek to penalize the taxpayer for taking an, a position that was either unreasonable, they finally determined, or did not have substantial authority because it turns out it was contrary to the law as we finally determined maybe via court cases or other options was the real law as the IRS takes their position. So what the IRS says is effectively in this. They discuss both things in the Internal Revenue Bulletin and those that are not. And for things in the IRB, generally, you know, these are considered binding on the service if they're in the IRB. That's where you see like revenue rulings, revenue procedures, announcements, notices, etc. However, they do warn you, the standard caveat, that they are not binding on the service if there has been changes in laws, uh, court decisions, etc., that supersede this particular revenue ruling, revenue procedure, notice, announcement. The IRS is essentially under no obligation to update those items that appeared in the IRB if there is a change in developments that make them no longer valid guidance. You as the taxpayer, or more appropriately, you as the advisor, have to do your due diligence to make sure there hasn't been a law change that impacts this, that the code still says what it said with regard to this when this was published, that we haven't had court cases or other things that have come out in the interim that render this guidance, let's say, at least questionable or no longer valid for reliance upon. So they note that, right? And you need to be aware of that. But absent that, they will go ahead and accept and be bound by. You know, if they said in a revenue, like let, let's talk about on the off chance that you really did have a rental that wasn't a trader business, but had enough hours to make it into one and you made that, you know, and you decided to use the safe harbor, the IRS, since the law has not changed in the interim, uh, the IRS will be bound by that. They can't say, you know what? We were totally wrong about that. We actually had no authority to issue it. So sorry, you know, you're not a trader business. They're bound by that. Now, if Congress goes back in and changes 199 Cap A, and especially if they changed it with relation to rentals, then that would no longer be valid and the IRS wouldn't be bound by it. But what about these FAQs? Well, for the FAQs, the IRS makes it clear. The FAQs are issued for quick guidance 
you know, the IRS explains why they feel the need to do this. It's important to get guidance out to taxpayers. It's important that people understand what's going on. However, if the guidance turns out to be contrary to the law, the law applies. And more importantly, if it's contrary to the law and the IRS guidance was more taxpayer-friendly than the law, the IRS can still assert the law and the taxpayer cannot use the FAQ to defend their position and be able to get out of paying the tax. Now, I understand that it kind of puts these on the same plane as IRS instructions or IRS publications. But there is a practical issue here you should be aware of, but you know, be, be careful here. So agents will still almost certainly follow the FAQ if nothing obvious has come out recently. Nothing's come down from chief counsel's office or something that tells them don't follow it. Secondly, even when they, it does turn out the courts rule that the FAQ is at odds with the law, the IRS does have a big PR issue. And the most recent time we saw something like this was when the IRS won a case that took a position that was at odds with their own publication. This was a case of Bobrow versus Commissioner, TC Memo 2014-21. And you may remember that because that was a case where they said, look, a taxpayer can only roll from all of their IRA accounts taken as a whole once per year, right, for the 60-day rollover, where they take the money out, right, not direct rollovers, but 60-day rollovers, where they take the money out and then they put it back in within 60 days in a different or the same account. The taxpayer had used each IRA account, like, you know, have one with Schwab, have one with TD Ameritrade when they were separate, you know, have one with, uh, you know, Merrill Lynch, have one with, you know, Morgan Stanley. And they used each one and did a 60-day rollover separately out of each, you know, with different time frames. And in fact, could do them like rolling because, you know, you take it out of one. Then when it came time to put the money back in Schwab, you take a, a rollover in the same amount from Morgan Stanley. That gives you another 60 days. When that 60 days is about to run out, you go to Merrill Lynch and you took it out again. Now, the only problem was the IRS publication uh, at the time uh, that covered this publication on IRAs, uh, which was pub which is publication 590, specifically allowed a per account rollover. IRS becoming aware of that because, you know, advisors pointed that out. You know, you've said for years this is OK. They released announcement 2014-15 that essentially gave everybody until the start of the next year to still make these separate account rollovers and then beginning in 20 in this case and i believe it was 2015 then we'll start enforcing this rule in fact my understanding is the taxpayer in bowbrow was actually offered by the irs a settlement that just kind of ignored the whole problem so the irs won the case uh but they finally did a settlement of the case that allowed him to go ahead and make a quote late rollover you know they they overlooked they they didn't look they basically applied the announcement retroactively, even though they'd won the case. Now, the problem is, of course, your client can't rely on that. Um, so I guess the good news is if it's a position, you know, a whole lot of people have taken, you know, because the IRS very clearly says you could do it as they did the publication. Again, it's got to be clear, not just something you inferred, because, for instance, that whole bit about the employee retention credit and the splashback on the majority owners. I realize the IRS FAQ never said that happened, but I also point out it never said it didn't. It just said, oh, it just said, you know, if you're related to a, a direct, you know, a direct or indirect owner, it never said the splashback didn't happen. That kind of implied never said, you know, we talked about that, I think, two weeks ago in a case where the taxpayer tried to argue that, well, you know, it never really said, you know, it's like it was kind of silent in saying, so we, we thought silence could count. No, silence doesn't count as an endorsement. Uh, you know, the law being silent on something, saying, no, we didn't, no, no, we, we don't repeal this part of the other, other part of the law. That, that doesn't mean that they repealed it. 
right? And that was kind of the argument there. So you don't don't try to argue by exclusion. I need a sentence that says you can do this. The publication had a sentence that said you could do this. There's a good chance that you'd get relief. But if it's an obscure situation or you've interpreted the interpretation, which is what you would have done on the ERC issue, where you didn't get a straight line in the fact that said, you know, this never would apply to a majority owner, uh, that's not going to protect you in cases like this. However, the IRS does agree that it works for penalties. So if your client is facing a penalty, right, because of that, so the IRS, let's say it's a substantial understatement uh, because of the position you took, and the IRS now holds that that position is not in line with the law. They look to collect, you know, a tax that's in excess of the percentage limits for the substantial understatement, more than five grand as well. Uh, that's an automatic, roughly 20% penalty, unless you could show substantial authority if you didn't disclose or you have a reasonable basis for doing so. The IRS says we will consider it reasonable basis and we will specifically consider it in cases where it would require substantial authority. So they're almost, but not quite, making the FAQ substantial authority, but you do have to show the taxpayer relied upon it. So it doesn't mean the FAQ is substantial authority. If you read carefully here, you still need to have the taxpayer state they relied upon the FAQ. And then we will go ahead and say, okay, it's fine even without disclosure. Now, a couple of areas of concern about this. First thing is, this particular guidance, unfortunately, claims only to apply to significant FAQs. You're going to get this. Here's the catch. The IRS says if it's a significant FAQ, they will now issue a, a basically a news release and post a, a fact sheet, because that's the other problem we have with FAQs. We didn't easily have a way of knowing when they were changed unless you went and checked the website every day. But the IRS now says that this new news release and fact sheet rule applies to significant FAQs on newly enacted tax legislation. The IRS doesn't tell us what would be a significant FAQ. But clearly, it suggests there are insignificant FAQs that may relate to new tax legislation, and those would not go through this process. Secondly, what exactly will qualify as new tax legislation? Let's take that 199A FAQ that the IRS put out, which has never had anything in the Internal Revenue Bulletin to back it up. Is that still considered new legislation? Is that what they mean by this? Or do they mean by new legislation, legislation enacted after the date this was released? So if the IRS went back and said, yeah, you know that whole messy S-corporation? If you're self-employed, you know, if, if you basically are a more than 2% owner of the S-corporation, uh, you have to deduct the self-employed health insurance twice in computing QBI. That, that crazy ruling, if they deleted that, do they have to issue a press release? And it's not clear from this notice if they would or wouldn't consider it covered by here, whether they would need to give notice of the change. So that's also a bit concerning. Ultimately, is this a good result? Probably. It does tell us that FAQs are kind of like publications with one major caveat. The publications are updated regularly, right? The FAQs, the IRS does not go back every year and make sure all their FAQs still are in line with current law. FAQs are still a problem because they're on the website and you can go read them. But you really have to now treat them for this purpose like the IRB stuff. Check that date last updated and make sure the law has not changed in the interim. No development since the interim or else you can't have even the penalty protection reliance on the FAQ. So, yeah, it's still a mess to know when these things are being fixed. And you can't just rely on news release in the back. Remember, when the IRS published that S-Corporation self-employed health insurance rule, it was just before, a due, just before April 15th of the year in question, which was April 15th of 2019, right? Just before April 15th, 2019. And they issued no press release or any other document whatsoever that they had put significant new guidance on their website 
regarding the 199 cap a deduction it just all went out under the radar in a way that clearly was designed come on you put something out the last week of filing season and you stay totally quiet about it that has all the hallmarks of something the service planned nobody to ever notice so that's really the key but again remember we do have the protection for penalties so keep that in mind well, this has been the Current Field Tax Developments for the week of October the 18th. We do plan to be back here next week. I will have to go do a session my first and maybe only, we'll see how things work out this year, sessions in the eastern part of the country in person. Uh, so I'll be in the eastern part of the country talking to a firm. Uh, it's, I'll be doing some remote sessions, but none in person at this point this year. So we're still working back to in-person. I definitely will have in-person sessions in Arizona. We're working on seeing how that's going to work out. You know, now we're hopefully going to be able to pull it off in Idaho at the end of this month. But that's going to depend on how people sign up like normal. So, you know, be careful there. Uh, you know, not be careful, but just, just be aware there. You know, we got to keep an eye on that to see if people are willing to come in the door. Uh, we will have live sessions in person here in Arizona. Uh, at least the ones that are scheduled to be in Phoenix will go ahead live and in person. Uh, I suppose there could be a question for the ones I'd have to do down in Tucson because the Phoenix sessions are, for me, I just go to their office and, hey, it's real easy. We do it that way. No extra costs are incurred by anybody. Uh, if I have Tucson sessions, I have to go down there for the two days, and that incurs some travel costs that, yeah. If there's nobody in the room, it's a little crazy to be talking to an empty room. Uh, just have it broadcast potentially from a empty hotel room. So we'll see how that goes. But I'm hoping it looks in Arizona. We've seen decent, reasonably decent enough numbers that we actually are being able to work out some of this live presentation bit. And I'm hoping that continues going forward. And again, we're really hopeful that in next year we'll be able to start doing actual in-person sessions. I do expect a lot more to be simulcast like we've done in Arizona for years. Uh, but still, we can do some in-person coming up and we'll look forward to that happening as things get under control we're all hopeful that this would be the year for that so far the majority of cases i'm still not being asked to come in a room so that's just been a reality for the current limitation but we'll look forward to that uh, otherwise you can catch me on the connect sites for the state societies i do answer questions on uh the connect sites for arizona new jersey uh minnesota uh illinois Washington. And also I, I do keep an eye on what goes on on the uh, online bullet on the online system that isn't connect, but very similar. That's run by the Idaho Society of CPAs. And otherwise, let's go ahead. We'll look forward to you guys coming back next week. And uh, we'll talk about what's been going on here in the area of current federal tax developments.